Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to New Books Network. This is the channel in media and communications, and I am your hostess with the mostest, Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns. Today, I have a rare treat for you, a triple threat, amazing author, fellow rhetorician, and a friend. Joshua Gunn, associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin and author of today's book, Political Perversion, Rhetorical Aberration in the Time of Trumpeteering, hot off the presses from University of Chicago. We are recording this episode as the second impeachment trial for former President Donald Trump begins. And if you are, like me, the Trump fatigue is real. But this is not exactly a book about Trump. As Gunn puts it, Labeling Trump and his ilk as fascist displaces our collective responsibility for their ascent to national power. In Political Perversion, Gunn argues that, quote, Trump's rhetoric and person are better understood as replicating a style and genre of political discourse that has a long history, but Gunn has eloquently reimagined it as what he calls structural perversion. Gunn argues that perverse rhetorics dominate not only the political sphere, but also our daily interactions with others in person and online. From sexting to campaign rhetoric, Gunn advances a new way to interpret our contemporary political context that explains why so many of us have difficulty deciphering the appeal of aberrant political figures. In this book, Trump is only the tip of the sinister, rapidly growing iceberg, one to which we ourselves unwittingly contribute on a daily basis. With that said, I'm excited to interview Josh Gunn, Dr. Gunn, Josh, whatever you want to be called, joining us from Austin, Texas. Are you there? I'm here. I, I, I'm here. Hello, hello. And what do you like to be called? I should have asked you before we started. I mean, we're friends before this. So you <laughs> call me Josh. <laughs> All right, Josh, it is. Well, Josh, I'm psyched to have you. This is, um, as I've told you multiple times, not that our age uh, gap is that much different, but you were a little ahead of me. And in grad school, you were just like, the person I wanted to be. So having you and the new book on the podcast, I feel like I've arrived. But you are a new character, I think, for some of the audience. So would you tell us more about yourself and how you came to write Political Perversion? Yeah, um, I'm a first-generation college student. Grew up in um, grew up in Georgia in a place I never want to return to. Um, uh- I left at 18 as soon as I could get out. Um, and uh, got interested in cultural studies and rhetoric and ended up going to grad school with that um, and with that interest in mind. And so that's what I've been doing ever since is sort of a mixture of rhetorical studies, media studies, and cultural studies. And um, I was in a reading group at LSU, which is my first job, and the the two folks that led it were into psychoanalysis. So that's how I really got into thinking. Uh, thinking was Zizek and Freud, and Lacan was in that reading group. Um, and so that's that's how I got down this trajectory of doing uh, using psychoanalysis to make sense of culture, to make sense of rhetoric. Um, political perversion... The book came to me in a very strange, kind of scant way. I was fascinated by a show called American Horror Story, mm. um, and it was in its second season. And um, when I got interested, I said, "I got to write about this because it just—it was so perverse. Like the stuff that they were depicting on primetime television struck me as different. Right? You're used to thinking about horror films." Um, as, you know, having psychotic monster characters. And American Horror Story had monsters, but, you know, the first one was like in a rubber suit. <laughs> <Stop being a laughs> ghost that, 
you know, it was like an SM culture, SM culture. And then the second season was even more perverse. Like I was gasping at the openers. Like one of them, one of them, um, the, the rock star Levine, I can't remember his first name, um, you know, is, is having uh, oral sex and, and gets his, um, uh, his his member bitten off mm-hmm. and I, I was just shocked. I was like, this is and then there's one scene where, you know, Santa Claus kills someone with an axe and you're just like, wow, how does how is this sustainable? Uh-huh. And then I then I had a friend who's like, well you need to watch Dexter. So I started watching Dexter. It's like, oh, and then um you need to watch Hannibal. So I started watching Hannibal. The the theme across these was perversion. And I was like, I just need to make sense of this perverse turn in horror television. So I started reading for about a year. Perversion is um, wasn't something I'd ever really studied in the psychoanalytic stuff. I'd studied psychosis and obviously neurosis, but perversion was new for me. And one of the reasons is that it's just real difficult. It's a difficult topic. So I was reading, 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 reading about perversion um, from many different angles, not just the Lacanian one. And I was, I think I was sitting at home. I was actually sitting at home on my patio, and I had my laptop open. And I was streaming Trump's uh, announcement that he was running for president, right? So he's coming down the gaudy golden escalator. Um, and, uh, you know, he starts ranting um, some racist stuff and make America great again on and on. And I thought, not only is this cheesy, it's really kitschy the way this is organized. And I got to thinking, it's like, wow, this is perverse, like in mm-hmm. the sense that I've been thinking about horror television. So, I immediately started retooling all this research I had done on perversion into thinking about politics and perversion. And when did that turn toward perversion happen? Um, and so political perversion was kind of born out of that. I was studying horror television and trying to sort of reckon with this turn it had made and realized that, especially after the second sort of speech and in the, uh, the Republican presidential debates, like this was perversion on the stick. So that's where I got, that's how I got to the book. That's so interesting. So did you ever do anything with the, with the horror? I mean, other than the fragments of it that remain in this book, did that ever go anywhere or is it all just kind of hanging out in the margins? It, it's hanging out in folders incomplete. Um, <laughs> oh, well, I mean, there's verbatim stuff that I took from those fragments. That yeah. Ended up in the book. I was writing it when I was thinking about it. I was writing about horror television and it just, it just fit. Um, the, the only difference is that um, what was happening in terms of our politics is real, has real world effects, and it affects right. Lives. That was where I was going next. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so so tell us about that. Yeah, tell us about that difference, or, or the similarity, or the contrast, and how you see those two things as lining up, but also maybe one having higher, having different stakes than the other, so to speak. Yeah, well, the entertainment horror, you know, and I just named the three, the three that I was focusing on, Dexter, Hannibal, and American Horror Story. All three of them, arguably not with Hannibal, but more about that maybe later, but all three of them have this undercurrent of hope. Mm-hmm. As bleak as it gets, right, as bleak as they all get, there's this, this hope that's sort of held out at the, at the end of the dark tunnel that, that they push you through. And that's the amusement part. That's the amusement ride part of it. He's like, you know, you're going to come out of the haunted house um, into daylight, and um, you know, the water is still blue because of the dye they put in it. And <laughs> the amusement ride, so it smells of chlorine. Everything's going to be safe. What was harrowing about the Trump's presidential campaign is it, it was like watching a, an amusement, um, 
a, a train wreck. It was like, surely this is not this is not going to happen. Surely mm-hmm. this kind of campaigning is an anomaly. Well, no, right? It turned out to sort of affect, and I think affect permanently our political system. I've always said, you know, uh, these these shows will go away. They'll be retired. Like kind of sort of reviving Hannibal now with this new show called Clarice, which I'll watch and see, you know, how they frame it. Um, but I think that trumpeteering uh, is my term for it. Trumpeteering is here to stay, even if it's in another term, another name. And it's just kind of an illiberal secularism wrapped up in either nationalism or religious clothing or something like that. And a liberal, illiberal secularism is this win at all costs, mm. right? The ends justify the means sort of approach to politics, which uh, the Trump administration was the apotheosis of a strategy that arguably started with Newt Gingrich, right? But that's debatable. Um, but this sort of approach to politics is is here to stay, and we're watching it right now. I just before I got on with you, I was watching the uh, the impeachment trial. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's apparently a foregone conclusion that uh, Trump will be acquitted a second time. Um, so I, that's another way of saying Trumpeteering is here to stay, even if Trump is not. Yes. I guess once in a while I get emails from Newsmax, which is this incredibly conservative news outlet because they want, mm-hmm. a, you know, I just I happen to reply to a, a request once about, you know, language and politics and Trump and the question was, what will happen now to the MAGA movement now that Trump is gone? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, this is a movement now. We're thinking of this as a movement. I was like, that's terrifying. Well, that's debatable. Um, well, it's, it's a debatable concept, but it's also debatable that this yeah. organization is sort of promoting it as this thing that will outlast Trump. It's also right. smart because that's precisely what I would do if I were them. Yeah. I mean, Trumpeteering as political strategy, that's not going anywhere. Um, yeah. To call this as a, a movement, I I hesitate to call the MAGA base a movement because yeah, it too. really is, it's really an audience. Mm. Tell, audiences don't pre-exist television shows, for example. Television shows bring them into being. It's an argument that John Hartley made you know, decades ago, and I think, he's, I think he's right about that. Same way with polling. Polling brings a population into being. There's not like this this population that pre-exists the poll, the poll frames, right. Right. The, 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 the poll literally frames what's thinkable in, in, in terms of the poll. And so, uh, you know, the MAGA folks are an audience that was constituted by this four year long reality show that happened to be, um, presidential. Uh, but there's no question it was a show and, um, you know, it had a pretty harrowing ending on, um, on January 6th, where we're, we're seeing now the sort of what's the, the consequence of that. Um, but uh, I don't know if that audience is going to persist. The question right now is actually whether or not QAnon, oh, that's which is associated, overlaps with that, whether QAnon is a movement. And that's something a friend and I are working on right now because it, it transcends Trumpism. Um, it goes much beyond what we would consider Trumpism, even though Trump's the major figure in that myth of, you know, the, the liberal satanic cabal. Yeah. And in the book, you're, you're, you know, Trump is sort of, again, one of the many examples that you use, but the big focus is on this concept of structural perversion, mm-hmm. which you describe as, quote, a mean spirited turn in American politics on a continuum with infantile and gotcha forms of entertainment 
meant to engender provocation and sadistic enjoyment. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was wondering if you could, you've kind of said a little bit about that already, but can you unpack that for folks and maybe give them the quick and dirty version of some of the theory you're bringing into that argument? Yeah, sure. The main theory, um, the main theory revolves around this term structure or psychical structure. And I get that from Lacan and I am by no means a strict Lacanian in the sense that I sing chapter and verse. I, I, I like Lacan and I tr- am aware of the, the work, but you know he wrote for decades and changed his mind. And so it's kind of hard to say that I'm a systematically Lacanian thinker because his concepts change. So um, I use the concepts that I find uh, helpful to open up or explain things. And the psychical structure is one that I think is really interesting. Um, with, Lacan's not interested in in using symptoms to diagnose some problem as much as he is discerning particular structures for individuals. Um, and a structure is basically the scaffolding of self. Right? It's based on the structure um, that our self, our selfhood accrues over time. Mm. And a structure is another way of saying a set of defenses or a set of relating to others. A structure is how you and I relate to other people. We have these patterns of relations that we have with others formed relatively early in life. Um, and so Lacan will say you know, the, the most common, or rather the default structure, is neurotic. And a neurotic person, which most people are neurotic, is someone that reckons with their own limitation, um, has feel has feelings of guilt. And so the way that they relate to each other, um, the way that neurotics relate to each other, is what we would call "quote unquote" normal. Mm. The psychotic structure is again a set of defenses, but a psychotic structure refers to a person that just has not internalized what we might call the superego, the social codes of what's right and wrong. And so a a psychotic person may never exhibit symptoms their entire life, but that particular structure is one in which there was never um, a separation from the primary parent. There wasn't a secondary parent to come in and say, hey, you can have more than one relation, not just with uh, the primary parent, but with me and with brother and sister and and so so forth. So the psychotic is super rare. The perverse structure is is weird <laughs> because it, as a defense for Lacan, a perverse person realizes that they are not the same person as their mother. They realize that they need to separate from the mother or the primary parent to become their own independent person. They recognize that another parent says, no, you can't have mommy all to yourself, but they never let mommy go. So another way, a, a perverse defense structure is, I hear what's right and wrong, but I'm going to do what I want to do, or I'm going to do what I want to do anyway, even if it's wrong. Um, and that's a and that's a perverse structure that's replicated in different relationships with different people, right? Because it's kind of a habit of relating to others. So what I'm doing in the book is trying to say, okay, so we have these structures, um, and and Lacan's really clear about neurotic behavior, psychotic behavior, perverse behavior. It's not the same thing as a structure. The structure has to have these patterns that repeat over and over in order for one to say, okay, this person has a psychotic structure. Um, what I'm trying to do is kind of what Freud did in, in his later work, which is to say, how do we understand social movements? And Freud says, well, a group behaves like an individual just collectively. And so the way that, you know, say a social movement works is that the group substitutes their own sense of right and wrong, what we call the superego, with the leader's sense of right and wrong. Um, and that gives one a kind of temporary relief because societal rules of us, right and wrong, are exhausting. Um, they're tiresome, yeah. right? Love thy neighbor as thyself. I mean, 
come on, is that even possible? <laughs> right? Like that's a that's a high bar. Um, and so you know, yeah, we, yes. we do all sorts of things to deal with that guilt, that inability to live up to these standards, and it's usually an intoxicant. You know, Freud says it's, you know, that's when we do drugs and that's when we drink. And that's what love does. Love is an intoxicant. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Freud says, so we can think about social movements this way is the leader is an intoxicant. The leader wow. sort of allows people to suspend their own sense of right and wrong and substitute it for the leaders. So you hear for, you know, this is, this is what I'm trying to do now with Lacan, who, who would not make a distinction between individual and society because, you know, we are involvements of the social in some sense. But what I'm trying to do is say, well, what if we think about discourse as inhibiting a kind of structure or exhibiting a kind of structure? Um, and so the book is me trying to work out how a perverse structure animates politics. And that's kind of what I see Trump representing. So I'm not interested in like saying Trump is a pervert, although I take up that question at the end of the book. You know, what does it mean to say Trump's a pervert? But I am interested in sort of how that political turn that he makes represents a sort of embrace of perversion in our politics. And it, it's all about spectacle. It's all about the gays, right? Things that have long, the gays has long been recognized as a, as a, a perverse enjoyment, at least in film studies. So what I'm doing is trying to sort of say, let's think about the group. Let's think about the community and the collective, the electorate. Does that exhibit a structure? Um, and so my argument in the book is, yeah, it does. What we're seeing is this perverse structure now kind of dominating our politics, um, our political discourse. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And um, you actually explained it super well, so I'm not even sure I need this follow-up question, but you offered a really good example of junk food uh, as a metaphor for <laughs> right. kind of like quick and dirty understanding all of this. And I thought that might be helpful for readers, even though your explanation was great, but I thought that just in case anyone still has lingering questions, that might yeah. be the way to go. So junk food's a great example. Um you know, the, the the crude analogy here is that, you know, Donald Trump is the junk food president. Um, the homology is is pretty stark and easy to get. Um, the, the, the baseline of the book, right, and this is where it, it gets difficult, is that we're all perverse. One of Freud's really revolutionary conclusions um, is that we all come into the world polymorphously perverse. Um, we can use just about any object to get off, so to speak. And it's society that sort of molds what that object should be, right? Um, so, ah, mm-hmm. so for Freud, I mean, if you want to take it to his logic extension, heterosexuality is a perversion of the primary perversion, right? The home base is perverse. You know, you're trained to be a heterosexual, right, in our culture. Um, and, and so I began as a baseline. We're all perverse. And junk food is my, my go-to example, which is I know this food is bad for me, but I'm going to eat it anyway. Right. And the whole junk food industry, or I, I call it crap, crap food conglomerates, um, are all about, you know, treat yourself. Right. That junk food is a way to treat yourself and we eat it um, knowing that it's bad for us. And that's just like everyday perversion. Like, I think everyone yeah. gets that. What's the worst food in the world that you could eat on a holiday? Mac and cheese. Not good for you. Mm. Right. <laughs> we all want to eat some. Um, and, you know, Trump and his taco bowls and Kentucky Fried Chicken, right, is a sort of e- example of the sort of cultural superego that you need to enjoy, enjoy or else. And that's that's a perversion that's sort of built into our, our food service industries, right? 
the only reason that you keep getting these advertisements on your social media feeds for kits that are delivered to your house for you to make dinner or keto kits is what I see a lot of now. Hmm. The backdrop of that is, is that the, you know, crap food dominates. So pay us 60 bucks a month and we'll send you these healthy food kits. Well, that make that appealing makes sense if the default <laughs> is unhealthy. Yeah. Right. So, right. That's that's where I mean is junk food um and also just Trump's intimate relationship the whole re- intimate relationship between politics and food and we've already had people that analyze sort of the rhetoric of food ways and this sort of thing but I think looking at our crap food conglomerates and the way that they operate advertise and sell us terrible food is makes it easier to see how politics does this too and, you know, it was always there since from the inception of our country. There's a built-in structural perversion with the declaration that, quote-unquote, all men are created equal. We are still struggling with that because we know when that was declared, that did not include women and people of color or slaves right. uh, or indigenous peoples. Or, you know, think of all the exclusions that are built into that that one phrase. That's perverse, right? It acknowledges a reality that it denies at the same time. All all men are created equal, and yet we have a massive system of slavery. <laughs> so that's not a contradiction, right? That's another point. That's not a contradiction. That's a disavowal, right? That's a denial of something that's real, a knowing denial of something that's real. And I think know, the knowledge is the key point here. I know this junk food is not good for me, and yet I'm going to eat it anyway. Or I'm going to eat it in secret, right, so no one can see me eating it. My father used to do this. He, he, he was morbidly obese and he would, he know, you know, he would be constantly on diets and not supposed to eat junk food. And then you'd get in his truck. And of course, in the back are all these Burger King bags and Taco, Taco Bell bags where there was a secret drive through run or something. So does that make sense? It does. And um, actually, so you kind of have, have brought us to the third chapter. So we're going to kind of go out of order here. But you, the, so this structure of I know I'm going to do it. Um, I know what I'm doing is bad, but I'm going to do it anyway. You have this term for it from kind of classical rhetoric, uh, occultatio, which so disavowal. And you actually link it to Pee Wee Herman, <laughs> which I thought was really cool. So maybe you could talk about that. And then, because uh, again, there's so much in this book that's not about Trump. And I thought the Pee Wee Herman example of kind of, especially distinguishing between if we're all perverts, what makes for mean spirited perversion, that's a problem. And what's like, just kind of like the fun perversion that people treat as a problem, but actually isn't hurting anybody. And why don't we just do more of that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, one thing I want to make really clear is I celebrate perversion as something that we share. Yes, I think that's important to, yeah. So there's a whole continuum here between a universal, almost fun kind of perversion down the line to mutually informed consent, which is both our legal and medical decision rule, right? It's, you know, if you, if you want to, if you want to do something whack, if you want to use fuzzy handcuffs, that's your business as long as the person you're putting on, putting them on says it's okay. And these are all permissible, what I call permissible perversions um, and very, you know, and ones we all share. Uh, structural perversion is different because that's the one that starts to veer into to harmful, harmful stuff. Mm. Occultatio is an ancient trope um, that goes by many names. My friend Jim Marchia has a book on uh, Trump's campaign and she focuses on paralepsis, which is another name for it, which is acknowledging a reality that you deny at the same time. And, and Trump is like his whole discourse is built on this trope, which is I'm not going to say 
Megyn Kelly is a bimbo, but I will say she's a bad reporter, right? Well, that is an acknowledge of a reality of what he really thinks about her and a denial of it at the same time. And, you yeah. know, all the way up from a phrase to an entire discourse, this is, this is his modus operandi in terms of, of his rhetoric. And that's disavow, right? Disavow is I'm denying a reality that's apparent. And disavow would be the one word I would use to characterize most of Trumpian discourse um, or most of uh, this new emergent um, faction of the right. Some conservatives are disavowing themselves that disavow is like central. Now, what I say in the chapter that you're referring to is disavow always seems to be hitched to demands. And demands are another Lacanian concept that's sort of built on the cry. And so Lacan says, you come into this world full of needs. At some point, those needs give way to demands. Um, And demands are like, give me a cookie. I want a cookie. And what Lacan says about demands is demands are not just about needs. In fact, may not be about needs at all. What demands are, are demands for recognition, ultimately a demand for love. So child demands a cookie. Is it really about the cookie? No, it's about the parent that recognizes the child by giving the cookie. You could probably substitute the cookie with something else. Um, a carrot. That's what my mom did. was always like, give me carrots instead of the cookies. But, <laughs> but, you know, it's like mom is recognizing me or showing me love by giving me this object. So all demands from give me a cookie to political demands are demands for recognition. And so what I argue is that disavow and demand go hand in hand in this rhetoric. It's not just, right, I, I disavow this reality um, that's obvious uh, to everyone, but it's also, and I do so because I demand something. And that's kind of what I argue throughout the book, is that that's how this discourse works. It's disavow and demand, disavow and demand. And so the Pee-wee part is just from Pee-wee's big adventure where he and Francis are arguing over his bike in the film it's basically the whole film revolves around a, a red rider bike that peewee loves and at the beginning of the film the rich kid comes over and says he wants to buy the bike and peewee says it's not for sale and they get in this argument uh francis like well my dad said i could have anything i want you know because we're super rich so there's an appeal to a paternal figure and a p- appeal to money and peewee denies it peewee's like you can't have my bike this is my bike and so what I argue is you have this argument, this demand, right, for the bike. And my point is it's really not about the bike, right? It's really about Francis's need for Pee-wee to recognize him and his power, um, and Pee-wee refuses to do it. So the whole thing breaks down on, I know you are, but what am I, right? That's the whole, uh, <laughs> the whole melee is this very childish, I know you are, but what am I? And so all I do is I sort of say this is kind of how um, demands work, um, so you could extrapolate this, um, you know, not all politics are perverse, but, but they are often a politics of demand. Um, what's unique about Trumpeteering is that it is perverse and it has this, you know, conjuncture of demand and disavow and the way that it works. Um, and the problem with that is one of the things that disavow does to demands is it makes demands insatiable, right? It's never mm-hmm. going to be enough. So demands become... Uh, addictive uh, in in the sense that you can never get enough recognition. So it's not a so it's not in the register of compromise, right? It's in the reg, it's in the Hebraic register of righteousness of almost this sort of prophetic discourse. That's how a lot of mo- social movements are successful, 
is by making uncompromising demands. I think the civil rights, uh, the civil rights um, movement, for example, is a series of demands. The key, though, is it's not perverse in, in the way that it mm. demands move. The thing about trumpeteering is it's perverse because it's a disavowal of a reality, for example, of white supremacy. Right? We all know, quote unquote, we all know right, that a lot of this movement is about xenophobia, racism, and uh, the perceived threat to white supremacy that uh, our growing population of persons of color. I mean, th that's just what it is. Um, and, and the so-called Southern strategy is built on this disavowal of this appeal to white supremacy. No, we're not racist. We're not appealing to this white supremacy, but it is. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes me think of the, the sort of the reaction to cancel, the cancel culture reaction. Right. Because right, you, like speech can never be free enough. There can never be enough. You can say whatever you want for people, for, for kind of like this mass audience on social media to say, you know what, maybe here is where we will draw a line. The mm -hmm. line is just like always too close, right? Like, oh, now it's John Wayne. Now it's like, I thought about that a lot as I was reading the book because I was thinking that the this fierce reaction against even mild disapproval of someone saying heinous stuff, it, it kind of feels like a, a structural perversion reaction to me that's part of this trumpeteering network. Yeah, I mean, cancel culture was not a thing when the book was finished. The book was finished almost a year and a half before it came out. And that, yeah, that yeah. was because of pandemic delay and all this, I mean, this chain reaction of stuff. So QAnon's not in the book and cancel culture's not in the book because it would be now if I had to write it again um, because it, it, it pre, you know, it came after this, this book was done. And then, and as you know, you know, at some point you just got to stop writing stuff keeps happening. Yes. Right. right. It's happening yeah. and happening. It's like, you know, yet another thing to talk about in terms of this perverse culture. But there, there's a there's a homology or a formal parallel here between cancel culture and alternative facts or fake news, uh, uh -huh. right? It's all a disavow to say that CNN's fake news. Well, they're news. But there's definitely an opinion. Um, but is it fake? I mean, it's not made up. They're reporting on things that are happening. So um, just call it fake news is a form of disavow. And whenever someone says, you know, fake news, it's off, all, almost always followed by some sort of demand. Um, mm. Listen to me. I've been canceled. <laughs> well, mm. I've lost I've lost over 100,000 Twitter followers. Um, mm. And, you know, recognize me. And you're like, you know, those Twitter followers were probably bots. So... They weren't really followers, <laughs> you know, the, yeah, they're all, they're, they're all a piece. Um, and we, you know, we see this discourse repeating even now. It's like, oh, let's, re let's restore a sense of order by putting, you know, let's and by that, I mean, let's restore our default neurosis by putting mm. uh, Biden in office. Our discourse will be deliberative again. Well, right now we're, we're dealing with an aid package to help people just you know, wasted by the pandemic. People need help and, you know, Biden's trying to, quote unquote, negotiate with uh, Republican leaders on this package and they're not budging. You know, they're giving him a fraction of what he wants in terms of uh, monies to to give people to help them survive during this thing. Um, and it and it's starting to collapse right down into that illiberal approach, approach, which is, well, they don't need a three fourths majority to pass this bill. Democrats are probably just going to march right through. And again, that's that's the kind of politics of win at all costs. 
Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, it's not just a it's not just a product of the right um, that this is on the left. I mean, this is throughout our political system. Well, and I think there's a really important point I just want to take, which is there's been a real challenge, I think, in the last couple of years of people being scared to really seriously engage the, the far right and Trump, because if you engage them, then you sort of just right. There's there's like the sense that you kind, it kind of has to be all or nothing. You kind of have to just dismiss them as crackpots. Or if you actually engage with them, then somehow you're authorizing them. And I think this book is a really good example of the fact that you have dug in to figure out this phenomenon, but it does not legitimate or kind of somehow like justify what is happening. But at the same time, it's helpful because I think just dismissing this large contingent of Americans as idiots and uninformed and et cetera, et cetera, I don't think it gets us anywhere. No, it doesn't so get us anywhere. This is a way to understand them. Yeah. So I, I think this is an incredibly valuable book well, for that reason. I took this perspective back in the Bush 2 Bush administration. I wrote about this in terms of Michael Gerson, who's a speechwriter, was a graduate of Wheaton College and is evangelical and believes in spiritual warfare. And so in that essay that I write about, Bush's speeches, I talk about this is an exorcism, right? This is a formal pattern in religious discourse and spiritual warfare discourse, and it's in all his speeches, post 9 11 speeches. Mm. One of the arguments I make in that essay is you can't write off, right? Let's say evangelical Christian public as voters, A, because it's bigger than you think, but it's not a problem public. It's not something that you could dismiss, as you say, as crackpots. Um, same way with QAnon. You can't, you can't dismiss QAnon believers as crackpots. There's a piece that came out in the New Republic a couple days ago, which I agreed with strongly. It was basically that the left is really mishandling the QAnon phenomenon because the assumption is they're just a bunch of ignorant rubes. And education, yeah. education is the way to sort of stop this sort of this harmful kind of myth making. And the point of the op-ed was these are educated people. These people had college degrees, you know, education is not the problem. And so um, writing them off as a problem, problem public is bad. That's exactly how Trump got elected, right? Yeah, I read, a, I read a similar piece about the Capitol riots and everyone was like, please stop showing the photos of the two or three people dressed up in furs who are obviously like kind of working class sort of t- stereotypical Trump supporters, because many of the people that no one's talking about are business owners, right. politicians, right. educated people, thought leaders. Right. I mean, we need to focus on how that's the contingent that we need to look at. Yeah. Right. I only got interested in politics with the Bush two administration. That's when I started writing about politics. I mostly focus on cultural politics. So the race discourse initiated by Beyonce's Lemonade album, for example. That's mm, I have an I have a piece on that too. Yeah. I love talking about that stuff. Yeah. Typically, that's where I focus my political work. But, you know, um, with this uh, this last presidency, I mean, the, the, the two cultural politics and politics, politics imploded. Now, it never was separate to begin yes. with. I mean, you know, most people don't know that P.T. Barnum ran for office and won. So this is not, quote unquote, new, um, the entertainment mm-hmm. and politics being uh, together. But it is it is it, the, the conjuncture has is different, has been different in the last five years. Um, and so that's yeah. what's interesting to focus on. Um, and the media, journalistic media often talks, you know, they'll, they'll interview a Trump voter or something. They'll go to a town and say, you know, talk to Trump voters. And it's always framed typically on the, you know, so-called left-leaning media. I watch, MP, uh, in, I listen to NPR and PBS. Those are like my two main news sources. People say it was always framed as 
look at these rubes. Look at these ignorant mm. people. And we got to stop framing it like that. Yeah. Well, and this was a big critique of that hillbilly, I never can pronounce this word, word elegy book when mm-hmm. it came out, is that it, it became one of the like bestsellers, quote unquote, explainers of the Trump phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And it, it stereotyped his audience as only this one particular kind of easily dismissed group. Right. So yeah, it's it's definitely been a perpetuating cycle. But I I don't want to get too far off the book because you know we could talk about so many things. But what we haven't talked about is um you actually opened the book with some look with looking at social networking, teen sexting, and some of these like kind of hate posts mm-hmm. as this as the way you get started on this discourse of perversion. And you argue that um you say popular public discourse has started to exhibit its own psychotic structure discernible in public refusals or failures to acknowledge doubt and a symbolic authority that or who establishes and polices limits. And so we talked a little bit about this need for recognition when we talked about the Pee Wee Herman bike scenario, but we could, I think, dig in a little bit more to this refusal to acknowledge a symbolic authority in Mm -hmm. the context of some of this social networking Mm -hmm. stuff. Do you want to pick up on any of those threads? Yeah, I just want to, we need to keep these, uh, the the business of a difficult distinction to make in the book. But mm. the argument that I set up there, because I'm trying to sort of explain what are the conditions of possibility that allow for this kind of politics to emerge? What's the setup here? And is it really novel? As a lot of people say, we've never seen anything like this before. Or is it more of the same? It's just it's more explicit and conspicuous and easy to see. I kind of lean on the latter. It's just more conspicuous. This perversion goes back centuries. Um, in, in our politics. But what I'm trying to do in that particular chapter, chapter two, is explain what is the media, what's the media media infrastructure that allows for certain kinds of discourse. And my focus with social networking is it promotes a psychotic kind of discourse. That is a discourse that doesn't recognize limits, that doesn't uh, recognize authority. Um, I'm just going to be me. I'm going to say what I mean. And then, it'll, mm. you know, I'll text something awful and then I know it'll be gone the next day. Right. Well, uh, you know, there'll be another there'll be another tweet that that directs people's attention. So in that in that in that chapter, I talk about the, you know, the phatic image titillates and then it goes away. Um, and that this is sort of the structure of uh, social networking is just one example of, of a lot of things that I'm talking about. Um it makes it possible. Can you clarify phatic, phatic image? Can you clarify phatic image and what that would look like? Because I'm not sure that's something that, that people. Yeah, I mean, a phatic, uh, you know, a phatic statement is just a statement to pass the time to establish relation. You know, talk about the weather. Hey, how you doing? Right, this sort of thing, filling discourse um, and, or throwaway discourse. And all I do there is talk about how Ray Bradbury and uh, Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit was it 451? I get my numbers confused. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. He talks about the fleeting image in that book um, and how right, it's, it speeds up right, a sense of duration and mm-hmm. moving from one image to the next to the next to the next. And his primary critique is of television in that particular book, you know, television eclipsing uh, the book, readerly books. So the argument here is that the way the Internet structured and because of the speed, the culture of speed that's oriented around our social networking and discourse, Twitter is the prime example here. Um, I talk a little yeah. bit about Facebook is it encourages psychotic behavior. It encourages mm-hmm. a kind of s- psychotic discourse or it's a psychotic setup where there's no recognition of authority limits or rules. So people post things they regret, but in the moment of posting, you know, it's just kind of liberatory. Um, and, and Trump did this routinely with all his tweets. I mean, just obnoxious things. Um, we know that, oh, he, yeah. you know, his, mm-hmm. 
handlers um, tweeted a lot of that stuff um, for him. So, you know, it was a team of, of tweeters that were working on it. But, you know, uh, the example I use in the chapter is this 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 teacher that talks, says awful things about her students and she gets fired. Right. But what enabled her to say those awful things in the moment? And so I try to sort of outline in that chapter, what are the what are the infrastructure for allows for this kind of discourse? Now, that I say is psychotic, but it's only those sort of psychotic conditions or coordinates of social media that allows for psychotic discourse that leads to a larger perverse rhetoric. Ah, okay, right? okay. So it's the psychosis that enables this perversion. And the reason I say this is, well, we're not moving into a psychotic rhetoric. And the reason is, is because nothing would get done, right? <laughs> If 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 the, if the electorate was psychotic, I mean, there would be no rhythm. There would be no regulation in, in the sense of having this rhythm of political life. It would just be a mess. So, you know, we could have a psychotic electorate, but it would last only so long because ultimately, right, psychotic you know, politics is a dance, right? And psychotics can't dance because they can't, they don't know the moves, right? right All right. neurotics are sort of... <laughs> rehearsing the moves and rehearsing the moves and one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, if you're going to do the waltz. And the reason I say it's perverse then is because of this, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm doing it anyway. I know this tweet is going to piss people off, but I'm going to tweet it anyway. Mm -hmm. That's not psychotic. That's perverse. Mm -hmm. It's just the conditions of psychosis allow for that discourse to be perverted. Other reason I call this discourse perverse or lending itself to a perverse structure has to do with time, has to do with temporality, because neurosis is reflective, right? A lot of uh, the default of neurosis ah. requires us to think about our past behaviors, correct them, right? Speculate about the future. But you need time to reflect. See, the reason the structure of social networking is psychotic is because it doesn't allow for time for reflection, especially as we move yeah. from blogs to microblogging, right? It's now this, now this, now this, now this. A psychotic discourse can't be sustained. A perverse one can because it has this kind of quasi-temporality is what I call it, quasi-temporality, in that the discourse allows for some reflection. You have to have some reflection to know that what you did or what you're about to do is wrong in the first place, right? But then you do it anyway. So, mm -hmm. you know, the speed, our speed culture, right, makes sort of psychotic behavior possible, but over time it's, it's perverse. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, that, that was a helpful clarification. Um, and I think too, I think it's help. I think too, people want to put these labels on things. And I think thinking of these as structures is really valuable because number one, it moves us away from a person centric right. critique to a system centric critique. Yep. And then two, you can see how all of these things ebb and flow into each other. And I, I just think it's a helpful layout for anybody who really wants to understand political discourse. I mean, I can see people reading this book and then being able to see some of the complexities playing out even on Twitter that maybe weren't were kind of being lumped all together as one discourse before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people and I claim to be a post-structuralist, so don't get me wrong. I mean, I love me some <laughs> Foucault and Derrida, right? And arguably, you know, at least later Lacan would be post-structural too. But by structures, I'm not talking about these universal things. Um, right. Right. Um, right. Like yeah. the categories are universal because they're, you know, sort of the categories are right, but the categories are universal, but the structures are kind of structures are ways of looking. They're not things to look at, is kind of how I always think about it. Yeah. I mean, it's a perspective on how to read a particular yeah. discourse. I mean, there's another way to read 
um, political perversion from a straight up Freudian perspective, which you already already touched on, which is a political movements, all political movements require some sort of leader or as we'd say in the con big other. Um, and that, you know, that leader makes things, certain things permissible and certain things off limits. And you substitute that leader's, uh, sense of right and wrong for your own for some relief from the fragility of our egos to begin with. And you can, you can run pretty far with that, um, in, in analyzing political movements. I just, I'm kind of trying to widen the net away from the leader per se. Um, and look at this discourse as, having multiple nodes or anchors and one of which for me is communication technology i think it's extremely important for talking about this um this emergent uh this new kind of perverse political rhetoric would not exist right it would not exist were it not for the internet and social media and everyone having a screen in their pocket right and media conglomeration. Yeah. I, I just did an interview with Danigal Young who's a media communications like comedy specialist and her book is a lot about how Fox News and the, has has just concentrated its media network over the last twenty years, mm-hmm. and it makes things look very different than it did when you had a more diverse and dispersed media right. conglomeration or in, or non conglomeration, right? Yeah, and I mean this is um this is a long time coming. Uh, you, you'll hear the story, especially I'm in a college of communication, so. I'm with journalism and uh, radio, television, film as well. My colleagues and oh, that's handy. Uh, one of the one of the the stories, the narratives, for the last thirty years is, you know, with the proliferation of multiple channels of information, information exchange, Big Other, the expert, um, has been dissolved or is in decline. Called the decline of symbolic efficiency in my in my jargon, but the the idea here is like, you had three news networks. And Walter Conkright was basically the, yeah. the guy. Walter, I mean, my, right. my school building plaza is named after Walter Conkright, um, who has strong connections to UT. But the, the idea is like with the descent of major figures of authority, you have people clamoring for some sort of, as I s- say sometimes, small God. So you have emergent communities now that are factions, right? Uh, different tribes yeah. that have their own different sort of leaders emerging. So it's Fox News, but it's also MSNBC, right? It's also CNN. It's also PBS. You have multiple, quote unquote, authorities um, as opposed to more singular ones. So that's another way in terms of saying there's there's a decline in symbolic efficiency. And all that means is the symbolic is no longer efficient because the others are now multiple. Right. So there are multiple nodes uh, uh, spread across you know, a vast um, network, cellular network, as well as sort of the ARPANET, the old the old Internet nodes um, that we're still working on. And with that. Yeah. And I do want to be clear for I do want to be clear for listeners. So the implication of this is not that the book is arguing that we need like to go back to the old ways of a Walter. Cron- right. That's not the point. No. The point is just that these things have led the way for certain kind of like structures to arise not that we should go backwards to the old way of doing things but just that what has replaced it is not is not maybe what we want <laughs> right Does that well there fair? there's no going back i mean to um to reference psycho psychoanalytic theorist melanie klein you can't go back in <laughs> i mean you know <laughs> you are you are you are forever alienated uh, and, and in this case, you know, one of the things I say at the beginning of the book is I have no solutions here. All I'm trying to do right. is give yeah. us some descriptive handles for, for what we got. 
you know, there is no putting the genie back in the bottle. There is no sort of reconglomeration of the establishment of the big other. I mean, a lot on the on the left were hoping that Biden, you know, middle of the road, baby bears, porridge, Biden would somehow re <laughs> recenter, right? <laughs> the, 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 the big other, the office of the presidency as the sort of authorial big other. Well, that's not happening for at least, you know, what, 70 plus million people. That's still not the case. Um, right. You know, scientists no longer have uh, the authority. Um, they're, they're no uh, right. That's been that's been criticized by a vast element of our populace. And so, right, the way that the left is positioning themselves in terms of establishing political power, reestablishing political power, saying we're going to listen to the scientists. You know, Fauci is right. Uh, so there are attempts in politics to sort of reform this sort of neurotic, uh, this neurotic center so the world would, you know, slow down a bit. But that's not happening, right? I mean, I don't think right. I, 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 we, we, that this attempt to sort of reestablish an authorial big other is, is going to fail. Um, we, yeah, we, we need to recognize where we're at, you know, how this is going to work. And I, I keep going back thinking about um, Laclos on populist reason. You know, mm, has been one of my faves. One of my faves. One, well, this has been critiqued because of the quote unquote misappropriation of Lacan. Again, I'm not um, really a, um, a chapter and verse kind of person when it comes to theorists. But Laclos saying is like, look, this is all hegemony politics, and you know that's just going to be the way it is. And I keep saying I need to go back and reread that because. I, I think he might be right. Well, it might be bad Lacan, but I've always really liked it. <laughs> I don't know if it's bad Lacan or not. No, I am no authority on Lacan. Yeah. Uh, I've been reading Lacan for over a decade, and you know, still, you know, it's it's a challenge to to keep it all in your head. Because well, I will say, I I know you say in the book you don't have any solutions, and I'm not asking for any. I'm I'm not going to do that to you as a fellow rhetorician. But I have wondered, thinking about this book, if the solution to a mean spirited perversion that Trump has. I don't know what the word is, not perfected, but is is the focal point for, is a fun perversion the the antidote, right? Like, like I'm trying to imagine what that would look like. What would a fun pervert president look like? And is that somehow maybe where we want to go? I don't know. I've just been thinking about that as yeah, I kind of think I mean, about bringing us to the conclusion of the book. Yeah, well, that's the last chapter of the book where I talk about play. Play is not right. an anecdote, but play is sort of built on... Um, mm. You know, a, a, a kind of perversion, if you will, um, that's healthy. So play is initially when, and this is Winnicott, this is not Lacan, plays where we learn rules, where we bend the rules, we playfully bend the rules. We ask for recognition in certain ways. I analyze Harold and Maude, which is this great film mm -hmm. about Harold trying to get recognition from a maternal figure. He finally does. But, um, you know, and I, so play is where I ended up thinking, you know, I, I, you know, I hesitate to talk about binaries, right? Good play, bad play. Yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, there's a better or worse play to be sure, but I think a, a little bit more playfulness, mindful of playfulness, lends to what I what I say, what what I fleetingly describe as charity. Um, I have no solutions, um, but if you have a question about what I would propose, it's a sense of charity, and I don't mean like you know giving to the Red Cross, so that's certainly important, uh, especially blood. Yeah. But I mean a sort of charitable attitude toward others, even those whom you disagree with. And I'm not advocating um, a return to liberalism. That is this idea that we're all equal and 
we can meet and have these discussions because I think the the liberal project in that sense is dead. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. So it's not that it shouldn't be something we shouldn't strive for. I mean, I'm all for deliberative democracy. I just think that faced with an illiberal uh, win at all costs politics, it's bound to continue to fail. Right. So yes, the, the answer is not quote unquote more civility. I mean, what does that even mean? If it wasn't for civil disobedience, you know, <laughs> we wouldn't have some of the major changes that happen in our culture. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I don't. I hesitate to offer solutions because I think I think we need to name and critique, um, kind of siding with Adorno. Among- oh yeah, and I'm not and I'm not pressuring I'm not pressuring you to. But I think I just I did want to get to some of the takeaways from the yeah. end of the book. They may, they're not solutions, but they're certainly food for thought. Right? There's this food metaphor that goes throughout the book and eating poorly, and I really enjoyed that. So yeah, as always, there's barely enough time to cover all the the richness of the book, but I think we've hit on some of the big ideas, and certainly, hopefully, I think readers get the idea here that this is a a critique that not only preceded Trump, right? Because you can tell that it was forming even before Trump sort of That's right. came into the spotlight, but it's going to exceed him. And so the ideas in this book are going to be important for anybody that wants to be able to kind of read this moment and into the future. So I definitely highly recommend picking up a copy of the book. And it is, again, just for anyone who forgot, this is Dr. Joshua Gunn's Political Perversion, Rhetorical Aberration in the Time of Trumpeteering, from University of Chicago Press. And a quick note of thanks to the university presses that support our work and a reminder to listeners that supporting these presses is crucial to get this kind of quality work out there into the world. Like this is not Amazon. (laughs) It's a lot of work and it's very little reward. And if you are not interested in a copy of the book for yourself, you could consider picking one up, preferably hard copy, to donate to your local library because that way the work can be provided to other people. Also supporting local libraries is important right now If you happen to be on a university campus, you can also put in a request that they pick up a copy of the book for their shelves. And there is more information and links in the show notes. So for the last few minutes, Josh, do you want to talk about the future of the book or what you're working on now or any more takeaways that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Yeah, I just want to mention um, the book isn't, I always say the book isn't about Trump um, with with regards to um, Carly Simon. I bet you think this book's about you. It's not. (laughs) So Trump is the is the primary example, but I'm really talking about a broader discourse. So if you have Trump fatigue, it's not obsessed completely with Trump. I'm trying to sort of talk about politics um, and where our politics is going in sort of a broader uh, broader span. Now, the, the only related project that I've um, that's related to the book is um, I'm working on one essay on the P tape, the Trump P tape. Um, oh yes, the infamous P tape. <laughs> the infamous mm-hmm. P tape, mm-hmm. and I, you know, did you find it? Do you have the P tape? No, but I'm, I'm calling the essay "You're in Trouble," and um, <laughs> the the argument the argument is it doesn't matter if the if the tape exists, it still circulates, and it puts us all in our place. So, right, drawing on yeah, the con, there was the purloined letter and that sort of stuff. The other projects with a friend, my my friend um, Kenny Fountain, we're working on a piece on QAnon, you know, what is QAnon mm. is our primary goal. So it's primarily argument of definition. Um, is it a social mm. movement? We don't think so. Is it a myth-making mm. movement? Maybe. Um, so we're, we're struggling with what to call QAnon um, and how to describe it so that we can actually do some work on the phenomenon. Um, and so that's where I'm yeah. going because I felt like I had an interview with someone about the book and they're like, why isn't QAnon in the book? And of course, I didn't know about QAnon um, when the book was done, but uh, I think that that's a, that's a lacuna that I need to address to continue with this project and argument. And so 
someone asked me, so, what do you think QAnon is perverse? And I'm like, no, it's not. It's, yeah, it's neurotic. It's neurotic. And so I have a good argument for that, um, that it's not perverse because of people who truly believe. Now, there's this outer ring of trolls and people that are, you know, messing around and, and they actually don't believe. And you think that that's kind of perverse. But for the true believers, um, you know, it's a it's a belief system. And so insofar as it's not like I know believing in this is wrong, but I'm going to believe it anyway. That's not happening. Right. People. Look- yes. I met a true believer recently and was very taken aback because there was not a trace of troll irony in anything no. they said. It was just true. Right. And they were not gleefully perverse about it. They were sad, right? It, they were sad that people didn't know, people yeah. wouldn't see. I mean, it was very like, it felt religious to me. I'm yeah. a religious person. No, it is. There is the spiritual element. My friend Kenny has really done a deep dive and is working through the 4,000 something Q drops now. Um, but one of the things to keep in mind about this particular movement, we're leaning toward calling it a myth-making movement as a phenomenon, is it's very positive. It's it's not evangelical. It's not like you need to convince your friends of this. Nope. Some people will come around. There's more good guys in the world than bad guys. You know, keep the faith. It's going to happen. So it's not like apocalyptic doomsday stuff like many people that right. aren't on the inside would expect. It's a very positive almost optimistic kind of belief system. So that's what's interesting to sort of bring out about QAnon, which is very different than Trumpeteering, in my opinion. Yeah. Trumpeteering is very negative. It's almost nihilistic and, and gleefully, mm. gleefully um, bad play, you know, playing, not playing by the rules kind of stuff. QAnon's different. I mean, there's overlap, but I think it's a different kind of thing. And so we're trying to Kenny and I are trying to wrap our well, minds really around what to, to call project. it. That sounds really interesting. Um, and you know, what are its discursive norms? So that's the next project. Well, I look forward to the research. Uh, thank you again for coming to the podcast. This was an awesome chat. I don't get to talk to you enough. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in and supporting New Books Network. Take care to the listeners. Take care, Josh. Thanks for having me. I really love having a chance to talk with you. All right. Talk soon. Goodbye. <laughs>